lace up your Share Jordans, listeners. As you may know, we've got lots of slam dunk ways that you can support shared history. You can leave ratings and reviews, become a Patreon patron, or you can purchase merchandise on the Arcade Audio website. While we love all the love, if you're reaching for your wallet, we'd like to encourage you to instead donate that money to Brave Space Alliance, Campaign Zero, your local Black Lives Matter chapter, or any other organization providing resources and support to black communities. If you have the time and the funds to support us too, awesome. Love it. We always appreciate a review on iTunes and Stitcher. But if it has to be one or the other, we'd prefer if you donated your money to one of these causes. Thank you and enjoy the episode. Welcome. To Arcade Audio. And welcome back to Shared History. The best part of waking up is history in your cup. Yum, yum, yum. <laughs> Just a hot, piping hot cup of history for and you this morning. Or whenever you're Generally listening. bitter and kind of dark. Mm-hmm. History tends to be, wouldn't you say? I would agree. You know what? You're really killing it with these... These jingles, taglines, metaphors. You know into what? The- I... I, I prepare which jingle I'm going to say, but what I say after that really comes from the heart and the dome oh. and um, just what's inside well, me. But just like a, a steaming cup of bitter, bad Folgers history, <laughs> sometimes you need to add a little something extra to make it palatable. And in that case, Cass, it's you and I are, are not making this palatable. You know who is going to make this episode palatable? I think I know. Can we say it at the same time? DJ Rip. I actually didn't mean DJ Rip because I know that he is with us only in spirit and not in not in audio on this particular episode. I meant I meant your friend and mine. Of course, I. We brought in a ringer. We brought in my dear friend who I have known since college, but is also a damn history professional uh ladies and gentlemen let me introduce to you the national history day in iowa state coordinator miss vania boland hello everyone (laughs) i love Um, a history professional that i feel really elite yeah you are um vania and i we went to iowa state together we were in Mm -hmm. uh, alpha delta pi sorority together we were. We have lots of stories. We were just talking about that earlier of like, oh, wow. Yeah. That seems like a... That seems like centuries ago. seems like centuries Wait, ago. Yeah. And also, Ka- what Ka- a you're weird... 80, you're 80 pie? Yeah. Yeah. Are my you gonna... mom was 80 pie. No, I was not. My, my <gasps> sisters. <laughs> Shut up. Yeah. My mom was 80 pie and my sister-in-law is 80 pie. Um, so there's a meme that's been... Well, it's been around for a while, but it's making the ranks again Um, of... Like, someone will hear something eerie, and it's like looks like it's going to be a horror film, and then he opens the door, and it's a video of, like, a million 80 pies doing the, boom, boom, I want to go 80 pie. <laughs> have you seen that? I think I have. It's frightening, and also, it's 
something it's a we frightening did. experience yeah we're just talking about how weird the concept of sororities were are i think that i've mentioned this on the podcast before because of course i would it has to do with chicago history <laughs> but at a in case i haven't or in case it's you know i'm just gonna say it again anyway we repeat ourselves it's a thing we do um, just like history yeah at depaul university where i graduated we could not have sorority houses, nor would I have joined one anyway, but we couldn't actually have sorority houses because yeah. of the brothel laws. We were just we talking that. about that. Sorry. That's, we couldn't live in the house over the summer because of a brothel law in Iowa. Do the brothel like, laws only apply in the summer in Iowa? Uh, well, you can't live in the house year round because then it's referred to... I don't know if the term brothel is in the code, but yeah. it's, um, it it's was, inappropriate, apparently. Yeah, so it's like you can minutes. only live in it, like, like nine months out of the year. So, like, the three months mm-hmm. of summer, I think, makes it more of, like, a, a lodging or, a, like, the mm-hmm. letter of the law. It's like a lodging situation so you as can, opposed to. You can, you, if you ran, like, a vacation brothel then you'd be fine. You'd be able to slip under the, yeah. under the rules and regulations. But you just basically, like, part-time. Basically, it was just like a... Like a Seasonal. A 19th century Airbnb. Well, here's what's yeah. interesting. So, like, I knew girls in the house that would have to stay on campus for the summer, but mm-hmm. they could move into a fraternity. I did that one summer. Because all the men would leave. So yeah. I'm like, how is it better to then move into a fraternity yeah. for over the... Su- like, I, get, I don't get is the it, point. Is it, it's like, it's the same of... It's still the same amount of women that would be living in this house over the summer, yeah. just in a different house. In a, in a, in a, a men's home. specific home. That makes, it's logic. Loopholes. Okay. Um, Vinia, we didn't think this we, one all the way through. I know. <laughs> we got off on a, on a tangent, but yes, you, you are the National History Day and State Coordinator, in yes. Iowa State Coordinator. Can you tell us a little bit about that? You work at the State Historical Museum of Iowa. I do. That's where I'm housed. So National History Day is a history education program for students 6th through 12th grade. So what we're doing is uh, essentially students are picking a topic and they have to develop an argument as to why their topic is important to learn in history. So National History Day has an annual theme. So this year's theme, we just finished our national contest, so we're done for 2020. But the 2020 theme was brand breaking barriers Mm. in history. So what the kids had to do is they could select any kind of topic they want, military history, women's history, science, technology, anything they want to do, but they have to defend and create an argument as to my topic broke barriers in history because of A, B, and C. So it's not just a fact-finding mission. We're not just developing a kind of report. The kids actually have their building thesis statements. They're doing in-depth research. They're building an analysis. Um, They're really having to create an argument and prove as to why their topic is significant and important to learn about. Which we talk about history a lot. We're either like, when you're learning about in school, either you're not given context, like Mm -hmm. what led up to this or what else was going on that made this important. And also why did this change other things? And why should we pay attention to this? Learning history (laughs) doesn't do anything if you're not able to analyze it and contextualize it. And I always ask my kids, so when they try to present, I say, well, why is that important? Why should I care? Why should I care that Rosa Parks, you know, sat in the front of the bed? Why should I care that that law was changed? You know, what does that Mm -hmm. impact me today? Mm -hmm. And that's a part of the argument. A lot of the issues we're seeing in society today, these aren't new. 
Mm-hmm. You know, the fight for Black Lives Matter, that's not a new concept. That's been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. And um, that's why it's important to learn your history, to educate yourself on what the problems are. Police brutality, that is nothing new, mm-hmm. you know. And so that's a part. I like to say I'm creating model citizens, <laughs> teaching <laughs> kids how to, you know, take um, a topic and go to their local library, go to their historical societies, dig for that information, find those primary resources to help them create an analysis and a voice for themselves. Oh, girl, we love a primary resource. Oh, then I'm on the right podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we don't we don't always have them, but yes. we love them. So we are recording this in... Or are we in June? Or are we in, we're in, still in end June. End of June. We're it's end June. of June and we're recording this. Um, how did your kids do at National History Day, Vania? Oh you were gosh. telling me this yesterday and, and you started a tearing emotional. up a little bit. Yes, those are my kids. I know everyone goes, who are your kids? All 70 of your kids that you took to <laughs> nationals? And they are my babies. I am the most obnoxious history soccer mom. Um, <laughs> six of our projects that the national contest is held in Washington, D.C. But of course, this year due to COVID-19, we were unable to travel to D.C. So it was all virtual. Um, judging took place the past two weeks and six of our projects made it into the final round. So they are in the top 10 of the country in their categories. So the one thing I didn't mention, categories go as they can take their research and write a paper. They can make a documentary. I call them my little Ken Burns. Um, They can create a website. They can build an exhibit, like a little curator at a museum. They can build an exhibit. um, Or they can do a performance. They can actually put together a script and be characters. And I would be more than happy to share links to all these different kinds of projects so you can see examples. My all-time favorite performance, I still tell people about this, it was my first year with National History Day, and this little Abraham Lincoln came around the corner. (gasps) He was a sixth grader, and he had a little fake beard, and he had a top hat, and I just... I knew I was in the right job. <laughs> I mean, he was doing the Emancipa- Emancipation Proclamation, and I just was like, "You win." If that is not my child, when I have children, I will just be <laughs> so upset. He was so cute, but yes, they. Um, those are the five categories, and so we had six projects that went into finals, and I actually have a first place in the junior group documentary. Yes, I'm so proud of. Them oh, was a documentary? Yes. Oh, it's so cute. I shouldn't say cute. They're probably like. Miss Boland, it's educational and powerful. <laughs> so their topic was rural electrification in the state of Iowa. So bringing electricity into Iowa, Ooh. breaking barriers. And my third place was a senior individual performance by, her name was Jessica Klein. So she's from George Washington High School in Cedar Rapids. So yes, very, very proud of those kids, especially when everything went virtual and they'd had to take all of their research and their physical project and they had to put it in a a virtual format. So performances are done in person. And if you're in a group project, if you've got five kids, you've got to figure out how to social distance and do your, essentially your play and follow social distancing guidelines. So that was, it was an interesting year, but I'm very proud of it. Well, that's gotta be hard too, because the fun of it is getting to do it with your teammates and everything. Yeah, that was difficult for them, but very proud of them. They did very well. And then um, 2021 is communication communication or communicating in history. So I've got some kids that are already working on stuff. Yeah, very exciting. So yeah, it's year round. It is. Yeah, a lot of my kids start researching and selecting topics in the fall. And our district contest, so that's the first level of competition in Iowa, start in March. Wow. So it's a lot of research, you know, it's not something that you can procrastinate. And that's, you know, when I say I'm building model citizens, I mean, they're starting right off the bat, going to libraries, Mm -hmm. looking for primary resources, doing interviews. I actually had a group of kids that reached out to the Russian embassy one year. (gasps) And I can't remember what their topic was, but I'm like, who did you call? (laughs) 
This was called, a, we just like called the front desk. It was a sixth like, crater. We just like, Google, uh, emailed Russia at gmail.com. Yeah, and what like, do you know? We you, got through. You know, you, some of those like TSA lines you can't even get through. But my little sixth grade kid got through the Russian embassy and was like interviewing people. I'm like, what did you do? <laughs> yeah. Very powerful. Ca- highly intelligent Cass, kids. Cass, do you want to like, do you want to like pull a 21 Jump Street and like pretend we're back it's we're like it never been kissed and go back to high school and oh my compete. god i think you and i could totally pull off what what's the oldest kids in 12th grade so we yeah, could be seniors. 18 i could be 18 i don't think that i've looked 18 i don't think i could have passed for 18 since i was like 16 we'll just well, tape down your boobs yeah we could just tape down our boobs and we'd be like we'd be like a rough looking 18 like yeah, yeah. she's lift <laughs> yeah we we started smoking and stealing our parents' alcohol. <laughs> really hit you hard junior year. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um so we're going to we're going to jump into your topic, but yes. what we always like to ask uh our guest is what generally do you like what's your favorite kind of history? It may not be the topic oh you picked, but just like kind of what you naturally oh. gravitate towards. I mean, I I always geeked military history, mm-hmm. Iowa military history. The Iowa Gold Star Museum is single-handedly one of my favorite museums. Really? Um, yeah, it's just a beautiful... I, I, military history always kind of excited me, you know, just from, like, the weapons. I was kind of a nerdy kid like mm-hmm. that. But I do really love Iowa history. I think it's because I'm from Iowa. Yeah. I'm from central Iowa. And there's just so many powerful topics that are not shared. I think, yeah. especially growing up in Iowa, there's this kind of persona of, well... We're farmland and that's it. That's all. You know, we're hogs, we're corn, that's it. No, 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 no. We had multiple, I mean, hundreds of people who fought for, you know, civil rights, who, you know, it just, it's a a remarkable list of names Mm -hmm. that are not shared. And that's one that I'm talking about today. Um, So when a new theme comes out for National History Day, we create a list of Iowa-focused topics that the kids can pick from. And this particular topic is a favorite one of mine just because it's so powerful and I think it speaks volumes to, it makes a connection to what's happening right now in our country. Mm-hmm. And he's not discussed. It's still, it's, it's a shock for me when I first learned about him. Um, and my kids have done projects on him and it's just, and I think there's many stories like that across the country. Oh, yeah. But especially coming from the Midwest, I don't think we're represented as well as we should be. No. And that's... Why we share our history. Absolutely. Yes. But also, um, I smell a field trip to this Gold Star Museum. Yeah, where is it? If Cass oh can ever lure me out of Illinois. I mean, anytime we have a road trip in Iowa, I'm down. Yep, you can look it up. I mean, we'll need your ID because it is on a base. Um, oh. Camp Dodge, which, I mean, it's not difficult to, to get through. Oh, is it Camp Dodge? Mm-hmm. Oh, they've yeah, got a great Johnston. pool. I don't know. It was great. It was fun. Yes, anyway. I mean, I can look up the specific address for That's you, but right. it's in Johnston. Yes. It's in, oh, but it's on the base. Cool. Yes. Yep. It's beautiful. They cool, have cool, some, cool. and a lot of the veterans actually help build the exhibit spaces. There's a trench warfare one where you walk in and you hear like, it's insane. Oh my God. Field trip. Field trip so hard. Absolutely. I geek about it. Yeah. So without further to do, let's get into it. Awesome. So the person I'm going to be talking about is Alexander Clark. Has anyone heard that name before? Alexander Clark from Muscatine, Iowa. Okay. So Alexander was a highly, highly successful throughout his life, African-American man. Um, He was from Muscatine, Iowa, which is located in eastern Iowa. So just to give you a reference, it's about 50 minutes southeast from Iowa City. So if anyone here has been in that part of the state. Um, Clark was a successful businessman, lawyer, editor, speaker, and in 1990 was actually appointed by President Benjamin Harrison to be the minister and consul general to Liberia. Wait, when was he born? 
He was born in 1826. Oh, eight, oh, I thought you said 19. Oh, no, 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 no. So we're talking Clark's life is happening mid to late 1800s. Okay. And so that's the context okay. I want you to think of is the role of an African-American man in this country, specifically in the Midwest in the late 1800s. Because what's happening in the mid to late 1800s? The North and the War. South. Yes. Wait, is this... My, I was like, wait, wait, 18, I know this. Yes, yeah, so the Civil War God is happening damn. in the mid to late 1800s. So that's just to give you a context of what he's up against oh, just shit. as being a, a black male. So I'll give you a little bit of background on him. Clark was born February 25th of 1826 in Washington County, Pennsylvania, to John Clark, who was a former slave. So that's a big thing we talk about with the kids, too, is a lot of these stories and dealing with race. America is a very young country. We're only, what, about 280 years old around there, Um, Mm -hmm. considering that, you know, Europe is thousands and thousands, you know, so when we talk about... But we're the best because we've made it for 200 years. We talk about that a lot. Absolutely. So they, uh, both of his parents are of African descent. At 13, he moved to Cincinnati, Ohio to learn barbering from an uncle. So from a very young age, he's very persistent. Um, his uncle made sure he was highly educated, very intelligent man. He leaves Cincinnati in October of 41, 1841, working a few months as a bartender on the steamboat George Washington before arriving in Muscatine, which this is still Iowa territory. So Muscatine's not exactly a, a, a oh, seat I, yet. We haven't had statehood yet, have mm-hmm. we? No. Um, so before when does arriving, Iowa get its statehood? Actually, eighteen. I want to say I should know this. Three, I like, want to say forty-six. Yep, eighteen forty-six is when we become a state. Good year. Wouldn't it so, be? Wouldn't it be a fun trick if uh, Vania could guess? could name when a when a state got its statehood within two years like you can name when a movie came out within two years you know what we might just throw random states at you throughout the episode that's totally fine <laughs> i have to go back and look at that one because then when you start working at dates as a historian you're like wait what like, i gotta go back okay so, yeah. when was lame is <laughs> <laughs> the French well, yeah, I gotta start from Les Mis and I gotta work my way up. Our frame of reference is always like, okay, where is this in relation to what was going on in Les Mis? Well, that's, you know, with our History Day kids, that's what we talk about, historical context. When you tell a story, you have to describe, like when we talk uh, women's the women's rights movement. Mm-hmm. Well, why are we fighting for the vote? Well, in the early 1900s, women didn't even have that right. Yeah. What they didn't? You know, well, now this is, you know, it's, they had to fight yeah. for that. Not, that was not given to us. So we have to talk about the role of the woman mm-hmm. before voting rights. Mm-hmm. So that's a big part of History Day, too. I'm going to, and that's one of the reasons I pulled up this topic is because not only is this a really popular one, but this is a great way to also make and show long-term impact. This has a monumental long-term impact that we'll talk about here. So he comes into Muscatine, Iowa at the age of 16, but throughout his life, Clark worked to improve the status of blacks in Iowa. I mean, he was monumental at this. In 1855, he and 32 other blacks in Muscatine County petitioned the Iowa legislature to repeal the law prohibiting the immigration of free Negroes into this state. But the plea was rejected. Uh, so from the very beginning, he's fighting for the rights of African Americans. Mm-hmm. So the... The right to Im- like to move like cross statehoods mm-hmm, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so yeah, during the you civil- couldn't even for a while. I can't remember. I just was reading something about how it was like illegal, pretty much for any Black Americans to like live in Illinois. Like, I was just reading like a whole thing about even like post Civil War. I believe mm-hmm. so. Or like during the Reconstruction or whatever? Yeah, I believe so. I don't know too much about that. But that was um, he also worked and petitioned to remove the phrase "white" from. Uh, Iowa Constitution. 
No way. Yeah. That and that's I can pull up that story too. I didn't so I've got a little bit of context background. He just he did so many multiple things. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to just for short on time, yeah. pull one that's yeah. very significant. So the the big story I want to talk about with Clark is Clark versus Board of Directors. And keep in mind this Sounds is two, ominous. Yes. <laughs> this is two years after the American Civil War. In 1867, Alexander's daughter, Susan Clark, was denied entry into the Muscatine Public School District. Susan attended the African Methodist African School at, during this time. Mm-hmm. So what I read is that she was when she was 12 years old, she was really um, succeeding in school, and they wanted to move her into more advanced schooling, which was an all-white school and the public school system. So she's denied, and her father decides to sue the Muscatine Public School District. You know, he's just like, absolutely not. You're not doing I'm this getting to my Brown kid. versus Board of Education vibes. Mm-hmm. What? How many mm-hmm. hundred years before? Mm-hmm. Sorry, I hope I didn't. Spoiler alert, but I just, you are jumping I just got to the back of the book. I just got chills. <laughs> so, Clark schools the school district. The Muscatine Board of Directors argues separate but equal based on her race in denying her. So that's what their excuse was. But when they took it to Muscatine District Court, they ruled in Susan's favor, which is really interesting. Um, And the board of directors appealed that. So you got to go to the next level. So the case went before the Iowa Supreme Court, which also ruled in Clark's favor, declaring separate but equal is unconstitutional under the equal equality provisions of the Iowa Constitution. So this is really, really powerful because not only is this happening right after the Civil War, but this sets up a platform for the future case of uh, in Topeka, Kansas, Board of Education. (gasps) So here's this part. The division, the decision was an important one preceding 86 years before the landmark case in 1954 ruling in Topeka, Kansas. Uh, The U.S. Supreme Court in Brown versus the Topeka, Kansas Board of Education reversed the separate but equal education policy. Because of what Clark did, they were able to use that decision to then end the separate but equal education policy. Because, I mean, anytime something goes to state Supreme Court or, you know, the full Supreme Court, you know, the full one. I don't Mm -hmm. know how it works. But, like, they're always arguing on precedent. Has Mm -hmm. something like this happened before? Mm -hmm. And if there's no precedent for it, it's, I don't know, it's hard to do something new or change something. So, that's... I will lay in some groundwork there for you. And I just can't get over the fact that we, I mean, the Civil War has just ended. I mean, the balls on this guy. Yeah. You know, and a lot of people are not happy. (laughs) No, but he was just like, you know, screw it. That like, that is not fair. So even I mean, just the his thought process, and you know, he's really ahead of his time, Mm. not just fighting for his child, but for the, you know, equality of all children of all race. So his lawsuit really put Iowa on the map. We were one of the first states to integrate the public school system because of him, which is just do you know when Iowa began to to integrate? I think after that, I don't have a specific date, but but I would assume after that. Yeah. Yeah. But still late 1800s. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, like, why is why is Brown versus the Board of Education in Topeka the one that, like, we study and that we know? Well, I think is this it is just because that's the one that was in the 60s? This well, goes up to the U.S. Supreme Court. So it ruled racial segregation in public schools was unconstitutional. So it's ruling out segregation is unconstitutional at a national level. Okay. Clark okay. was... No, not Clark. Clark so didn't. Clark, Clark only made it to Iowa Supreme mm-hmm, Court. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So Topeka is when it was the n- national Supreme. What do they call it? 
Yeah, the U.S. Supreme Court. U.S. You Supreme know. Court. Mm-hmm. Well, because there was another one. There's another one, and I know this actually because it's on. I have a beautiful. It's not as beautiful right now. Right now, it's a mess. But as an usually beautiful Excel spreadsheet <laughs> of uh, topics that I look forward to eventually covering. Um, and one of them is uh, is the Mendez family versus school segregation. And that was, uh, but I think I think similarly that one was a because that was also I think less than a decade before Brown versus the Board of Education, but I think it was California specific. So I think mm. now that I'm thinking about it, that one was that one is state Supreme Court specific as well. Well, and I just want to clarify. So I just looked up when segregation is ending in America. So in 1964, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act, which legally ended the segregation that had been institutionalized by Jim Crow laws. So just because it's ending in the U.S. Supreme Court, the states also have rights to where they Mm. can change and do their own policy. But the the official, you know, desegregation... that was institutionalized or created by Jim Crow laws. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's not just school. This is desegregating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was in 1964. So even though this case is happening 1954, I mean, it's still about 10 years until he signs that law. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's still just kind of an eye-opening of, you know, what's the, we talk with the kids about when they're selecting these topics, what's the short-term impact? So once, um, Clark has that he sues the school district they you know rule in their favor so that's a short you know the short term of that is okay we're desegregating schools in Iowa but the long-term impact it had an impact in helping support Brown versus Board of Education okay so that's when they're creating history day projects is how we talk about short-term long-term impact and the significance of that Mm -hmm. I should also mention that Mendez family versus uh school segregation in California was uh a Mexican-American family fighting against segregation in schools because the Jim Crow laws actually didn't stipulate uh, segregation between, like, Mexican-Americans and oh, it wasn't just Americans. Yeah, mm-hmm. it was specifically black and white. It was specific to African-Americans. Yeah. And so, uh, so yeah. So, their, their part of their argument was, like, you, you can't even... This is wrong for a variety of reasons, and you can't even fall back on what the... National, like what the national law yeah. is, if you will. Um. So, so you said he was a he was a lawyer. Yes, he did. Um, and I don't have the specifics on like what firm or anything that he worked on, but yeah, his background is is pretty diverse. So I know that he also bought um, a suit and newspaper. He was an editor for a little bit. Um, he went in through law. So his son was actually the first African American to graduate from the University of Iowa for law school. No way. Yeah. There's got to be a Alexander building named Jr. after him or something. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. So did do you know where he studied law? or what, uh, Sorry, uh, not his son, but... Alex, I am not sure. No. Oh, Alex, you guys on... Alexander. You guys right. on a nickname basis now? I, yeah. yeah. You and Allard type. Yeah, we're, we're pretty cool. <laughs> I can search it up, but it looks like... Um, I don't have the specifics of where he went to law school. No. A law degree in the College of Iowa City. Oh, so. So his son, Alexander G. Clark Jr., was the first African-American to earn a law degree from the college in Iowa City, now part of the University of Iowa. Yeah. So that's before it is the University of Iowa. You you just uh, wikipedia to get that, and they showed a picture of him, and he just looks so unimpressed right now. Like, really? <laughs> irritating. Really? You're going to? No. Sit down. I'm going to school you here on school. Yeah. Don't, don't fuck with me. It's a really good goatee. It's a good goatee. Yeah. Friends, go go look at our Instagram 
to to peep yes, that goatee. Yes, I will goatee. definitely send you these. Yes, beautiful goatee. Um, goatee yeah, watch. That goatee is watch. that's kind of the story. I did it short and sweet, but you, yeah, yeah, you, yeah. You've definitely given a, this presentation before. You're like, All I right, have a really important slide. question. Yes, Vinny, I have a very important question. Did 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 you tell him that he could call you Betty, and he told you that you can call him Al? We did not have that conversation. Okay, um, but is I this, would allow it. Wait, is this a, a Paul jo- Simon? Do you not know the song? I don't. It's a Paul Simon song. Well, now oh. I feel foolish. <laughs> it's called "You Can Call Me Al." <laughs> we are we are both just silent. Wow, no. I guess they don't <laughs> teach Paul Simon at in Iowa. Oh, they yeah. definitely didn't at Iowa State. No, Mm-mm. that makes us look. It's bad. the it's the it's all the right. for all the uh, ground we feel... just covered with Alexander Clark. We just took a step back with our lack of knowledge of Paul Simon's song. Yep. I think I will mm-hmm. refer to him as Al Clark now, though. That's what I meant. <laughs> okay, to. Al. It's the you you know the song. It's the uh, it's the if you'll be my bodyguard, I can be your long lost pal. Do do do. Oh. Do, do, do. I can call you Betty. And Betty, when you call me, you can call me Al. I, no, I'm not familiar with do. the song, Natalie. Can you sing a little bit more? I think I might. No, we don't have the rights. Start from the top. <laughs> we don't have the rights. Okay, that's one of those songs where I I think I thought he said, call me out. Like, I don't wow, know well, the that's lyrics. Just, that's just you and your call out culture. You know who always sang those lyrics with me, though? Me and Julio down by the schoolyard. Boom! Paul Simon reference. Actually, you're not allowed. You can't. Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah, you. You only. Do you only acknowledge him when he is with with a Garfunkel? I mean, Art had the voice of a damn angel, but we know Paul was doing all the work. Art could harmonize a car, a police siren. I don't know. I'm looking for a reference. Sorry, I couldn't think of it. But no, I'm, Paul's Paul's all the work. Look, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. Okay. Well, now I'm going to... We got to stop the episode. I need to go cry for a little bit, and I will be back. I need to stomp up the stairs and slam a door. (laughs) Okay, I'm back. (laughs) And journal for a minute. (laughs) I I love that story. I love that, like... I just love that y'all made it about Iowa, because Lord knows I make enough things about Chicago. I'm sure I mentioned... I don't know if I mentioned Vania on the actual podcast in season one, but Natalie had talked to you about Vanilla a lot when we were like talking about topics oh, wow. or whatever, and I was like, Vanilla works at a museum. She she like she's it's legit. Iowa, it's Iowa history. She's such a like a history buff. This would be so Aww. great. So and and I know you work at National History Day, and that's something that is is so important to you, and it's and it's huge. It is, yeah. Like like they have like national and international science fairs and stuff. I feel like people know about that. There's actually a documentary that came out about science fairs. Like, people go crazy. Oh, yeah, the kids are so intense. But but National History Day is huge. And didn't you say it's really big in Minnesota? It's huge. There's an empire in Minnesota. <laughs> yeah, they, they've got a huge team of, of support. But Minnesota, Minnesota is also very supportive of other states. I will say that. I've called them many times for help, and they are not ones to They're not like the bad guys anything. in Mighty Ducks? No. No, they are the complete <laughs> As, opposite. 
As your friendly neighborhood neighbor Illinoisan, is there like a strong contingency from Illinois? Because there I feel like is. I went to an academically competitive school and I never heard about this. Yeah, well, and that's kind of the problem with National History Days I'm seeing is I don't see it as uh, we don't have the same kind of, you know, publicity as other yeah. groups do. And that's kind of, you know, one big reason I wanted to jump on here, too. So, But now you you're so on the podcast, so everyone will know. Yeah, that. everybody's going here. <laughs> um and so, yes, there is a large contingency in Illinois. Um, there, um, I think your uh, base is in Chicago. I mean, I'd be happy to share your state coordinator's information. I'm sure they would love some kind of shout out when they're looking for judges. That'd be awesome. You know, yeah. Natalie, let's let's uh, let's get in contact with them and let's. You know, like people are like, I want to go. I want to hit every national park in the United States. Let's get every national history coordinator from each state on the podcast they're oh gonna hear goodness. that and they're gonna find you and oh be like i yeah i would welcome it you know That's what one less email i have to send bring it on well if you guys ever <laughs> want to talk to any of the kids i'm sure they would love to jump on and talk about their topics oh you know what nat if you and i could get our shoot together and do a clean episode i would love to have some kids on here yeah I would you love it <laughs> my my uh my art teacher from high school, who I still keep in contact with, and she checks in every now and then, and she listens to the podcast. And I went and visited her one time when I was home over, like, Thanksgiving or whatever. And she's like, Cass, you know what? I just... She's an art teacher, so she'll usually, like, play music while they're working or whatever. She's like, I wanted to put your podcast on, especially your, like, hometown heroes one. But you guys just swear so damn much. I was like, I'm sorry. Damn, sorry. One of my old biology teachers has said... Similar things about not being able to put it on in the car when his child is in the car. Our language can get the best of us. Some of our uh, some of our listenership. <laughs> yeah, we get really excited when we have guests like Vania, who works in a history museum, or Dr. Romeo, who is a professor of history, mm-hmm. because it legitimizes some of our our goofy talk. <laughs> yeah, it legitimizes our. It makes us feel better about our decision to love history, even though we didn't go into it professionally or academically, that in we fact, can at least bring on people who did. It's, it's, if anything, it's more proof that we did not go into it academically. Yep. The fact that, the fact that, uh, that we're asked what was going on uh, in the late 18, mid to late 1800s, and Cass is like, huh? It was one of those, you guys can't see, but we're on a, a Google Hang, so Natalie can see, and Vinny's in the room with me. I couldn't see me because I can't see my own face, but my face just went blank, and I was like, uh. Oh, jeez. I knew. I, it, oh, there, that's okay. It, there it takes are people. A there are people who keep saying, like, uh, like, Cass and Nat, you should come with us on, like, trivia night for, like, the history questions. And I'm like, we do. We, we research for for yeah. the episodes like we don't just have i mean you guys know we don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of, of anything except for we regularly talk about how trash we are at u.s history yeah but if it's a parks and rec trivia night mm-hmm. let's do it if it's yeah. obscure movies let's do it all the knowledge we have in our head is completely useless i mean unless you like need a history of like Backstreet Boys lyrics and I don't know like Daniel Day Lewis movies. I feel like that's something you've got covered. <laughs> Hit me I'm with it. I'll pro- you throw a Daniel Day Lewis movie at me. I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get the date. Actually, what a great segue that I set myself <gasps> up for. Look at this segue, Queen. I, Is it I Lincoln? Set, I set it up. It is not. See, there's so many great. Was Lincoln like, 2012 movies? I don't know. Cass. You're supposed to know that. 
I think Lincoln was 2012. But there's so many great Daniel historical Daniel Day-Lewis movies to pull from that, like, I could be going back to any of them. But this is but this is but like a a whisper of of DDL. Lincoln was 2012. I hate you. (laughs) So this, I'm not talking about a topic of Daniel Day-Lewis. It's just he's he's just there. He pops in. He pops in. Um, He is everywhere. And it's like. Yeah, I, if you could guess what my Dale left Lewis foot. reference I'm going to make, I would be very impressed. Is it my because left foot? Because I'm going to, it is not my left foot. Damn it! Oh, gosh darn it, I'm just gonna scooch on right past you and drop this ad. Today's episode is sponsored by Raygun, Midwestern mega nerds and purveyors of fine clothes with words on them. Raygun has been called the greatest store in the universe by Raygun. They are the most important clothing store Earth has seen since the early Mesozoic era. They specialize in timely witticisms, t-shirts, and modesty. If you breathe oxygen and wear clothes when you go places, you'll love it. And yes, this is a real ad and Raygun is a real company with real stores in the Midwest, which is a real place. Or you can shop online at raygunsite.com. That's R-A-Y-G-U-N-S-I-T-E dot com. Use promo code PewPew for free shipping and sick laser finger guns. Now back to the show. However, that also goes well because I'm about to tell you the history <gasps> of tap In the dance. name of the father. <gasps> Wait, what? I'm going to tell you the history of tap dance. A brief history uh, focusing basically more of on the, like, the birth of tap dance. Where does Daniel Day-Lewis come into this? Also, Vania just said she's a former dancer. Yeah, I used to <gasps> have to do tap painfully. Yeah, I'm very I, excited oh, about this Wow, stuff. okay, well, I love tap. Uh, I, have tap I, I have tap shoes and tore my... I was like, as an adult, I'm going to learn tap. I'm going to do a drop-in class. I tore my ACL after two classes, and I was like, well, I can't do it anymore. I mean, didn't we learn, though, that you probably, your ACL was already torn before you went to that class? You know what? Maybe it was the ACLs we tore along the way. <laughs> that one doesn't work. <laughs> Good try. Maybe but weirdly, weirdly, it does for you, because <laughs> you've m- torn yours multiple times. Um, so I now present to you a brief history of tap dance. This is my, we did... Cass, you did the. You've done a couple of like brief histories of like not people or events, but like yeah. things. And it, it. And I was like, what would I do it on? Because I, I really liked your roller skating I, history from episode one of this season. So, I'm sorry. I'm, I just need to get it out now before you get into it because I don't want to interrupt a lot. I am obsessed with tap dance. My whole life, I grew up watching like Gene Kelly movies and all of these old, and I just have always wanted to learn how to tap dance. Quick little thing. So Sutton Foster in Anything Goes has mm-hmm. an eight-minute tap scene. The I think this it's the song Anything Goes, and then there's like a four-and-a-half-minute tap scene uh-huh. that is intricate. And Mania, how long can you tap dance before you want to kill yourself? For me, it's about two minutes. Two minutes. She does it for four-and-a-half on top of singing one of the longest phrasings, whatever. Anyway, Jonathan Groff, who is another Broadway actor who's a self-professed professed obsessed with Sutton Foster recreated the dance verbatim for uh for Broadway, like miscast or brought for her backwards. miscast yeah and I at least once a year will watch that and when I do I watch it 12 times in a row 
And then whenever <laughs> National Tap Dance Day comes up, I know because it pops up on my memories on Facebook, I spend hours just watching Gregory Hines videos. And I just... Oh, I, I didn't, I didn't I know also that this looked topic a little, would... A little, I know a little bit of the history of like its origins and stuff, but I haven't looked into it much. So I'm so excited and I... I'm getting emotional, and I don't think people understand <laughs> how obsessed I am with tap dancing. I forgot it's, about this obsession. I genuinely forgot about this obsession, because I do remember one time you like yeah. posted a picture of like your tap shoes, and I was like, bitch, if you tap dance too, stop <laughs> being me. Because I, uh, I th- tap dance and like more of like a Fosse style jazz were like the first dance that I found in like community theater. You guys can't theater. see, but Natalie just moved her hands in a Fosse motion. Fosse. Uh, that I'm like, they were the first types of dance that I, a very, very gangly child in community theater and youth theater, uh, discovered that, like, I could actually, I could do and it kind of looked the way it was supposed to. Because, yeah. like, ballet always looked weird on me because I'm a baby giraffe. But you um, fall out when you walk, so. <laughs> that's true. Tap a uh, joke. Okay. So here's my brief history. And keeping in the trend of almost everything else I've researched this particular season... I got into this, I like really like sunk my teeth into it, and then found a source that was like, or everything you've already read is wrong, and this. So, well, it's just the theme I'm, of, I'm of my to, season. I'm going to, I was, earlier, I, was, I kept calling Nat, or Vania Natalie, or vice versa, and I thought that I'd be doing that throughout the episode, and I said, anytime I do it, I'm going to take a tally, and I don't know, I'll have to take a drink later or something, but I'm going to take a tally anytime that I want to interrupt you and gush about tap dance. And hopefully that <laughs> well, let will me either, get through, let me get through the history keep me from doing it or um, I'll just take drinks for it afterwards. Sorry, I'm going to try get my best the, to be quiet. Just let me get through the origins. And then once the back end of this, I was planning on like, depending on how much time we have, literally just like naming some great tap dancers and and shit that they do okay I'm so gonna try to be good. there there could be time so <gasps> so tap dance is born in america all all things considered it's it's one of it's one of few art forms that truly historians on both versions of the story are are very much like this is a born in america thing mm. but its roots come from several different ethnic percussive dances would you like to take a guess cast as to Irish step dancing Irish? and African dance. Yes, and then English clogging. So oh, the, naturally. Uh, I mean, I thought that was assumed. English and Irish clog dancing or jigs and the, the juba dance from Africa. Okay. Juba dancing. So the dance genre, though, that we know now today has like evolved over like some 300 years in the incubator of America. And there are, of course, contradicting stories on its origins because... Fuck me if I can ever find something that's actually a linear If thing. I see one more goddamn asterisk. <laughs> uh, but this is what I will say. They could both be accurate in their own right. One just ultimately feels a little bit more Eurocentric. Mm. And also, like, it just kind of, it kind of depends on how far back you want to go. Yeah. Because one version has tap kind of emerging in the southern states in the 1700s. And by in the southern states, I mean on plantations. And then the other has it not really coming about until the 1800s and being born in New York City. And this could be more of a journey of what we recognize as for sure the roots of modern tap dance Mm. versus like 
deeper, deeper roots. So in both versions, for the most part, it's the Irish jig and the West African uh, juba, which is a sacred uh, and secular step dancing, mutating into the American jig and juba. And I'm going to say I'm saying jig for Irish because that's what my sources said. And I was like, for some reason, the word jig seems like derogatory to me to put towards anything Irish because it just seems like It does. I'm, it's like when people say patty or toy yeah. toy toy But it's what all the historical things were saying. We're drawing a difference between Irish jigging and yeah. English clogging. Well, so. also, jig is a very specific, well, dance, but also coming from, like, music. Like, mm-hmm. it's a very specific subset of music a specific type of song that you do a jig to whereas i feel like the reason jig seems derogatory is because people just assume irish drinking song any irishing uh, any any irish Irish folk song is automatically a drinking song Mm -hmm. so i feel you so no matter which story you tell it these these two cultures musical and dance forms are huge proponents of it and then it evolves into the American jig and juba, which then evolves into quote unquote jigging, which was taken up by minstrel show dancers in the 1800s and of, of ultimately develops into tap, what we know as tap dance. But first, you have to get the Irish and the West Africans dancing and making music together. So, in version one of the story, in the 1650s, this is to give you kind of a little bit more context, in the 1650s, During the Thirteen War between England and Spain and under the command of Oliver Cromwell, guest starring Oliver Cromwell, uh, (laughs) Cromwell ships some like 40,000 Celtic Irish soldiers to Spain, France, Poland, and Italy. And then once they're gone, he deports, he finds a way to deport their widows, their deserted wives, their destitute families. Wait, so he got the military out of the country so that he could steal i think he took the military and put them in the war and then when the wick and so when they had been shipped off to do battle then he basically were like okay but now there's no one to defend you and your homes in ireland get out by your indentured servants now that feels very um intentional and super Mm -hmm. fucked yup Oh, all so, the so, not great. <laughs> as a result, thousands of Irish men, women, and children were basically kidnapped, deported, or exiled, or low interest loaned or sold into the English tobacco islands of the Caribbean. So around that same time, substantial proportions of mostly Atlantic coast Africans were thrown on ships and also transported to the Caribbean. So then you had West Africans and Irish enslaved and working together on English sugar plantations. And that is the environment in which they saw, like saw each other dance, learned each other's dances, learned each other's instruments because um, you had Igbo men learning the fiddle and you had Irishmen learning juby drums and like, and set dances that both cultures had became kind of syncopated to, to more Africanized rhythms. Mm. And so, and it's also believed that in the Caribbean, the Africans first European language that they learned was actually Gaelic Irish for the same reason that these are the people that they are Wait, working alongside. Africans. One of the first Anglicanized was Gaelic. One of, one of the languages? first European languages that they that they learned in the Caribbean was was Gaelic Irish because that's who they were spending that's all their crazy. time with. I mean that makes sense, that's but since Gaelic is 
basically a dead language almost at this mm-hmm. point. That's so crazy. But so, yeah, so then as as plantations and households in urban centers transitioned from white indentured servitude, white. primarily Irish. Also, can uh, I just cut in one more time? I'm making a tally on my thing, but it's not about tap dancing. <laughs> Vinny and I are both very Irish. Mm-hmm. And in college, we were going to go to Dublin together for St. Patrick's Day. We talked about it. It never ended up working. We've been in for like 10 years in the works of trying to get an Ireland trip together. Yeah. And every St. Patrick's Day, I always send a video of me with a Guinness singing, what is it, Wild Rover? Yes. Hoisin, yes. Wild Rover, Fireman. I shouldn't trashed. do it with that accent. Yeah. But so, yeah, so this also takes that on. That means a lot to us. It means a lot. We're sorry. You this guys. is just This is just hitting so many different <laughs> levels I right didn't now. know. I didn't know that I had catered so so perfectly. I'm upset now that you guys are drinking wine and not not like Guinness or you know what? Can or, we can we whiskey. cut here? Can we take a break and I'll no, go get we're the, not, no, no. no. Okay, sorry. I already interrupted. I've already got one tally mark. Sorry, Natalie. <laughs> well, so, okay. <laughs> so so long story here. short. Long story short, for this version, the plantations and households started to move away from white indentured servitude, which were primarily Irish uh, in America and in the Caribbean, to African slave labor. And so the cultural exchange continued because they always were overlapping in households and and plantations and working alongside each other. So the second version of the story doesn't take place until much, much later, which is why I said that they could both be right. But like modern historians are more of telling this other story. Well, and they could have happened correctly but this is just when the stories kind of like it they happen in separate yeah. places because one's north one's south it's just when they yeah. where they met well, in the middle maybe i i do think that it's also like i do think that it's also like let's not we we don't think that the actual story of this of this art form being born necessarily happened like under his eye if you will <laughs> like yeah. under like in slavery yeah. that they it, they're like it's a more joyful story than yeah than that and so b- basically there's I, I read a bunch of sources that had said this first version where they were like oh and the origins and i think it is a getting hung up on like yes the origins are these two forms of like are these two to three forms of dance mm-hmm. um we don't have to reverse engineer when these people would have like been cavorting together yeah. like that's that's cavorting. not yeah. the the moment, the moment is is this other one. So the source that said, "Hey, it's been long. It's for a long time has been said that it was this in the South or in the Caribbean, but modern historians actually are now saying this was uh, Encyclopedia Encyclopedia Britannica." So that's why I'm like, that seems credible. The Brits I'm gonna, should know. I'm gonna yeah. say that, that Britannica, <laughs> yeah, probably also right it seems um, more legit than like dance.org yeah well i mean one of the other sources was library of congress but it's oh, like well. i don't know when that they're, article they're, was written they're pretty good yeah you know i'd say, I'd say they might know what they're but talking also about with britannica and i teach the kids this too i think if you scroll to the bottom they might have some other resources where they pull yeah. their info just even for listeners like that's what I usually do is I scroll down and, and see where that is. Well, and the, for all like, you history buffs at home, because we assume if you're regular listeners, you're just doing 
you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a topic weekly and not share it because I'm just listening to <laughs> When you guys do research, too. I mean, just that's what I... Yeah. It's a good, well, that was the thing is that, that, that there were sources and the article seemed like it had been updated more recently than mm-hmm. the Library of Congress one. So, so the second version of the story is in the late 20th century, TAP was actually born in urban environments, specifically the Five Points District in New York City, where a variety of ethnic groups, hello, <laughs> Irish, English, and African-American. Did you call this... Gangs in New York? No, I didn't. Did you say that earlier? No. Lived side by side. 2009? And there's a... Uh, I, had it, oh, I had it up because I knew this was going to happen. I actually think you're more than two years off. Oh, no. Um, Honestly, all I saw was his glass American eye when she said 2005? the five points. Oh, no, 2002, which if I had said yeah. 2005, I would have been right on the money. I See? hate myself. I'll leave. Yeah, there's there's like a mention of it in, yeah. of, in, in the in also in three-hour epic. <laughs> Mm-hmm. There's a but there's a mention specifically of there's a scene specifically where they mention like that black Americans and Irish Americans are oh. all dancing together in Gangs wow. of New York. So, but no matter which storyline you follow, uh, early tap dance is a pure American blend, in the sense that it came from two heavily oppressed and marginalized groups at that time in history. It <laughs> did. Wow. Also, I now see why you said my left foot. Kinda ties in. (laughs) But yeah, so like once it's like in New York, whether it was born there or came there. In New York, though, that's where what we know as modern tap was really born because they had they had cutting contests, which were dance contests in like the mid to late 1800s. Where And the whole thing was that dancers would mature and kind of earn their place among the best of the best, not only by imitating each other's techniques and rhythmic innovations and like for these competitions. So like basically studying tape and learning each other's moves, but also like innovating new moves. So they were constantly trying to do something new one up each Um, other yeah tap dance though gained widespread popularity in minstrel shows after the civil war where uh you know white and black performers performed in blackface and tap danced and belittled black people by portraying them as lazy dumb and comical which is funny i can't imagine doing tap which is the least lazy thing I can think of to be doing. Also, Um, forcing people into manual labor and then saying they're lazy, like... Yeah. Yeah. uh, I don't know, white people. White people, I feel like there's a little bit of logical fallacy there. Yeah, just a little. Mm -hmm. The singing, like, dancing, like, quote-unquote Negro boy was, like, a very popular blackface dance hall character. Uh, uh, Actually, in 1844... One of the if we're gonna start if we're gonna start name dropping like pivotal tap tap heroes if you will <gasps> William Henry Lane also known as Master Juba was one of the only early black tap dancers to tour with a white minstrel group and perform for white audiences and so it's largely because of him that tap dancing was able to really retain its African American integrity through the minstrel period because it was. It was all, it was a lot of white dancers. And also there was a rule in vaudeville in the 20th century called the two color rule that made it basically so you couldn't have a black solo tap performer. Like there had to be somebody else. Are you kidding me? Nope. Um, I mean, again, shocked, but not surprised. Yeah. I hate that. But it's it's interesting because this is actually a quote from the Library of Congress is because it was really interesting that in minstrel shows, this like 
singing, dancing, like little black boy character was hugely popularized and tap dance became so integral to minstrel shows that quote by by 1849 the minstrel show a blackface act of songs fast talking repartee and negro dialects and shuffle and wing tap dancing became the most popular form of entertainment in america so tap dancing what like the this well it goes back to almost not almost every purely american art form where it was created in america comes from black people like Mm -hmm. not even not even stuff brought over from Africa, like yes, there are African influences, but the you know the you look at like jazz, the blues, yep. tap. Mm-hmm. It's all black created, like mm-hmm. oh, we well, and taps know, like appropriated. Like, like uh, Master Juba was like he was born a free man. He grew up in Five Points, but he's considered like unsurpassed in his grace and his technique. And he was the one who really was like not just famous for being able to do the moves that everybody knew, but like really executed and created his own specialty steps that no one else could do. And at this point, tap shoes are largely like they're like wooden clogs. They're wooden soled. Um, mm. Sometimes they had like a nail. They were they were I think were they like hob. Oh god, I can't remember hobnailed. Um, like there was like a nail in the shoe and that's what was giving you like your little metallic. Sometimes they had pennies attached to the heel and the toe because the aluminum taps that you know now as like mm-hmm. iconic tap shoes weren't until the 20th century because even through most of like the vaudeville stage, most people didn't have aluminum tapped shoes. But yeah, like for example, um, an example of famous, a famous tap dance act that also became iconic, like an iconic thing that you think of when you think of tap dance came about because of the two color rule or found a way around the two color rule, which was Buck and Bubbles, which was William John Sublet's tap dancing and Ford Buck Washington's on the piano. And so that was how they got away around it just being a single black solo artist is that these two very talented black men had their, uh, uh, one of their most popular acts was the class act, which was a routine where they both wore impeccable tuxedos, which Hmm. now, if you think of like a classic, like tap dance Mm -hmm. motif, you have like men with canes and like really nice tuxedos, which was like not what people were wearing while they were tap dancing until Buck and Bubbles. Then tap dancers began to collaborate with jazz musicians and improv. Tap dancers considered tap a part of jazz at that point because both rely heavily on improvisation and or celebrate improvisation and syncopation. And tap was a huge part of the Harlem Renaissance. Mm. You have Bill Bojangles Robinson, another shout out to an amazing tap dancer. And he was the first um, African-American dancer to perform without blackface on. Because even the black performers had blackface on. And so in during his lifespan, because so tap dance, so tap dances in minstrel shows, and then it's in vaudeville. And then Vaudeville is what they start pulling from for early television and movies. And there is tap dancing in movies that don't have sound. Tap dance was still iconic and used in those, even though, like, you think, like, what is what is tap dancing if I can't hear the taps? But it was still so clearly... You just could... You just didn't have to have crisp taps, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> you, could, you could flub it a little bit. Like, a lot of the girls and gents who I did musicals with in my youth who didn't fully learn to tap dance and just wore their jazz shoes and just kind of like really we're gonna move our feet arms. oh yeah it's all in the arms but oh but what I was saying is uh uh Bill Bojangles Robinson in his lifespan went like did that whole gauntlet of 
minstrel to vaudeville to Broadway to Hollywood radio programs and like television and movies. So when I did the deep dive into tap, I heard the story of uh, when it was created in the the five boroughs, the five points district. And it Mm -hmm. was the, the story that I read, which... It was probably like a Wikipedia or something. I didn't I didn't look for like a super reputable primary source, but it was that the you know the Irish coming in through Ellis Island um, and you know a poor black communities they were forced to live together mm-hmm. in the oh what did they call what did they call those apartments where there's like twenty people in one apartment hell. <laughs> is, that what, is that what they call it hell's uh, kitchen? Yeah. No, but you know comfortable. You know, there's like oh there was a. There was a term for living style or the living... I can't remember. I feel like it starts with an I, but... Inhumane? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. So they, so uh, the Black and the Irish lived so close together and that they would kind of adopt each other's uh, yeah. styles and that it, like, the Irish were very much on a, a three count. Like, Irish step was on a three count or it was like a four count, but it was like, I don't know. And then the emphasis was that the, the African style was on either a four count or the the heavy emphasis on the backbeat on the two and the four. Yeah, the so situation. Yeah, it was it was interesting how they talked about um that it was like you look at Irish step dancing like Lord of the Dance and a lot of people think that's tap dancing and that's not. Yeah. And how the American tap dancing is that specific Irish jig that one, two, three, whatever and that I don't know. I thought it was really cool how they brought yeah. the syncopation and the, the time measures to it. Well, and then it's like an argument could be made and a very valid one that then like the popularity of tap in like the 1920s and its preponderance on the Great White Way on Broadway almost killed tap Mm -hmm. because it made it this much more polished like hands and face and not just like feeling the beats and creating the music and you being the instrument yeah. uh, that it had been. Because also, like, I don't know, it's like there are people who, like, you say tap dance and they immediately think of, and this I'm not calling you out because call out culture. Because uh, <laughs> I called you out for call out culture. Earlier. Oh, yeah. But, uh, like, the people who you think of, the, the w- white people who you think of when you think of tap dance, mm-hmm. Shirley Temple, Gene Kelly, yeah. who you mentioned, Fred Astaire, like, they all did something slightly different, and they all have a hand in, like, the history of tap, but the the roots of it are, mm-hmm. is, is more emotional, more, I don't know, like, being the music, not just, like, feeling the music. Yeah. More what? jazz yeah, that's another thing, too. It's like I said, like, I grew up on, like, Gene Kelly and those old, like, black and white films where they were... They, well, I mean, you look at White Christmas. White Christmas, the movie and the stage play, has a number in it called Minstrel Show. Mm-hmm. And it's all white people performing in it. And yeah. so my introduction to tap dance was Gene Kelly, Fred Astaire, all of these, you know, white performers. And it's sad because I didn't realize, like the rich culture behind it or like honestly the much better dancers that were Mm african-american and that created the art you were talking earlier about like mentioning uh people that we know or that you know famous dancers gregory hines who who died Mm -hmm. of cancer in um 2005 early 2000s who was just like just the way his body moved like because everyone thinks like tap dancing is with your feet it's your whole body and Mm -hmm. he just moved flawlessly Mm -hmm. sammy davis jr there's also this it's called the greatest routine of all time greatest tap routine of all time i don't know if you know what i'm talking about it's the nicholas brothers 
Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I don't know if you were going to mention that or not, but it's, it was, it was televised and it was these two brothers, uh, Howard and, and Fayard. And they did, something says that it was improvised, which I'm sure it was like, these are the things we're going to do, but like the actual steps may have been a bit improvised. And it's, they're on top of the piano. It's the first time you see people Mm -hmm. like duo tapping on top of the piano. They are, there's these huge stairs that are like, you know, they're not regular level stairs. It's like three foot tall and they're Mm -hmm. jumping. They're leapfrogging over each other and tap shoes are slippery so they're doing really yeah, they intricate tap and slipping and they my do it knees, they do it in, they did it in one take too i remember i just was watching something yeah. about it too where they're like they're like we only have this one take to get this my knees cried when i watched that i was like <laughs> ouch 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 it is well because then there's also i think like a lot of people think of um another like really iconic one is shirley temple and bilbo jangles robinson doing the the one on the stairs and then uh oh, is that gene that's bilbo mm-hmm. jangles yep okay yeah. nice mm-hmm. and then gene kelly gene kelly's style bless that man's very attractive behind um <laughs> what in those waist-high flat law like oversized pants they wore back then listen they they worked for him if you can see uh, an his, outline of a his, booty your eyes are better than mine his style eyes. is is like very like ballet inspired yeah uh there's like more like leaps and stuff and then fred astaire's style is very ballroom inspired mm-hmm. and we have fred astaire to thank question mark for it becoming the norm to film tap dance from like a wide angle for film because since he and Ginger Rogers are like just him on his own like moved so much mm-hmm. he was like no 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 if you want to see like all the intricacies that are going into this it actually works better from like a wide angle wow but it's not about them it's not uh, about it's them. not but yeah so like in the 20s I found this quote from a producer Leonard Reed that said throughout the 20s quote there wasn't a show that didn't feature tap dancing. If you couldn't dance, you couldn't get a job. So, like, that's why like, you really had to do something pretty great or new to yeah. stand out. Because in the 20s, it just was everywhere. There was, uh, there's another famous tap dancer from vaudeville, um, Peg Leg Bates. Uh, Clayton Say Peg that Leg name Bates. again? Clayton Pegleg Bates. Uh, <laughs> he he lost his one of his legs in a cotton gin accident when he was a child, oh and he God. still danced like his whole life. And so he he tap danced with one mm-hmm. leg. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of he core. Had a, he had a. <laughs> That's right? true. But he frequently he I think he performed a lot on the Ed Sullivan Show, and then he also uh, he performed a lot for others who had physical disabilities. So there's um, there's video. There's like film of him performing that. Yeah, I'll 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 plan on finding like at least a snippet of everyone yeah. that we've mentioned. Jenny Legon was one of the first women to be a tap soloist because women basically weren't allowed to do to, anything. They weren't allowed to be. They weren't seen as soloists because they yeah. were seen as tap was seen as such an athletic mm-hmm. dance that they women were told that they were weak and lacked the physical strength needed to do the dance um, yeah. so they were more suited for chorus girls um, but Jenny Lagone was one of the first black women to be a tap soloist in the earliest earliest 20th century and scandal scandal she wore pants instead of skirts which allowed her get out of town to do so like one of her her signature style was very acrobatic mm. and lots of like split jumps and things that normally only the men did because the women who were tap dancing were in skirts yeah well, but you mentioned Gregory Hines yeah so I would be remiss if I did not mention Gregory I just, Hines. I just love him so much. He was I in, love him so much. He's the reason that I... He's like my one of my first memories of 
of like seeing somebody tap dancing and going, ooh, I want to do that. I want to do that. Was Gregory Hines on an episode of Smart Guy. He So he did a lot of, because te- he was, he was a like tap dancer by trade. He was in, I don't think he was in fame, but he was in some movie in like the 80s that was like about like dancers trying to make it in New York. And mm-hmm. then towards the end of his life, he was in a, he did a lot of TV appearances. He was mm-hmm. in um, Will and Grace. And he was in, yeah, he was in Smart Guy. He was in a lot of episodes. And I just remember seeing him everywhere. And anytime you have someone of that caliber on your show, you're going to be like, oh, let's slip in a little skill set scene. Let's let you tap dance a little bit. And I I remember when when he died, I was so devastated. But the majority of the stuff I remember him was usually just the episode or two he was on all these shows. And I was like, why am I so sad? I think because tap was like everywhere for a while, it like fell out of the mainstream popularity in like the 50s ish. Mm. Um, And it didn't really come back until like historic, like tap historians and dance historians like credit Gregory Hines as one of the reasons why tap dance regained really mainstream popularity in the 80s. Because Mm. the 80s is when a couple of like bigger like tap based musicals came out like mm. 42nd street came out i think in 1980 it made its broadway debut there's another musical called black and blue and gregory hines is credited with like securing a place for tap in the 20th century because he used modern music and he didn't use just jazz standards yeah. or show tunes or what you had heard with tap dance before and by bringing a new a new style of of tap into the world and well, then uh Oh, oh, can we just listen? Can we just talk about Savion Glover? Can we Who? talk about Glover for a minute? Savion Glover? <gasps> yes! Cause, well, because he, he does a lot of stuff where he uses no music, and you have to really be able to compel an audience with either charisma or fucking talent if you want to dance without music, and damn it if he doesn't. But that's like what like tap tap wasn't always with music because it is yeah. it is music or if it was with music it was like with one dude on a fiddle in a corner of like a pub in New York. Mm-hmm. There is a oh I'm trying to see if I can find it. There's like are a think- a girl group. Are you thinking of Tilly and the Wall where their percussionist also tap dances and so some of their songs. She's not playing the drums. She's tap dancing. Uh, no, it's ca- oh, it's they're called the Syncopated Ladies, and so again, there's like National Tap Dancing Day or whatever, and I like mm-hmm. s- you know you see on people posting on Facebook like National Donut Day or National whatever. I remember I saw someone post about it and then got in like a tap dancing hole and then posted about it. So every year I've got some sort of like this time last year, and then I go back into my tap dancing deep dive. And um, a couple years ago, I, for like a week, was just watching Syncopated Ladies where they've got an amazing routine. It's it's five women. They're tap dancing to, like, Beyonce's formation. Or they've got a lot of, like, pop standards. And it goes back yeah. to that tap lost its, I don't know, allure because it was tied to vaudevillian or that kind of, like, Rodgers and Hammerstein Broadway. And then music upgraded and tap didn't and then like you said which i didn't realize gregory hines kind of brought it back in the 80s because he was doing modern music with it savion glover makes it more modern and present and then 
now, like, look up syncopated ladies, and I could just watch that forever. And it's just Beyonce and like hella good tap dancing. Guys, I have a problem. I love tap. Yeah, apparently, I had no idea when I. Sometimes I forget how much I love it, and then I'll start talking about it. I was like, why am I? Why am I getting so emotional right now? I'm gonna have to look them up. Yeah. I just pulled them up right here because I couldn't remember their name. Damn it, Natalie. I'm going to get another tap dancing deep dive. I'll see you in a do you week, know how, guys. Do you know how difficult it was to research this? Because I just kept wanting to watch tap videos on YouTube. Uh, you're stronger than I. It just brings uh, back I mean, so I watched many a memories couple. of like taping my toes, bleeding through shoes. Like, Did you live I Julia Stiles' life in Save the Last Dance? Oh. <laughs> it was not as glamorous. Like, you go between or what's her face in center stage to tap shoes, and like even when you wear tights in it, like yeah. when you do toe stands or like it cuts up your toe. It takes a mm. lot of strength. Like you just build up a lot of calluses on the bottom of your feet. Well, that's also, that's also, you know, if you're playing a sport or if you're doing any sort of like an instrument or whatever, you're playing one sport or one instrument or whatever. If you study dance, you're studying all of the dance. You Mm -hmm. don't just like, Mm -hmm. you don't just say like, I'm going to be a tap dancer. You have to take jazz. You have to take ballet. You have to take modern. You have to take tap point shoes. I mean, I wouldn't know, but I've heard. I've seen every ballet movie ever made. <laughs> For real, test me. Center Stage is the best ballet movie of all time. Mm. Point shoes destroy, like, people's nails fall off. My feet and then are you still have to ruined. go to tap next, like, you know, the next day. Mm-hmm. Like, one year we did tap was the, we used to perform at the Civic Center. That's where my recitals were. That's in Iowa. Yeah, in Des Moines. <laughs> um, and they, we opened one show with, uh, it was like the Bugle Boy song. And then we had to like run because ballet was next and we had point shoes and it was like, yeah, it was a quick turnaround. But it's I like that just, scene in Phantom rude. of the Opera where Carlotta can't sing. I don't know. Bring on the ballet. Bring on the ballet. Bring on the ba- yeah. <laughs> Get <Yeah>. the sheep. <laughs> Yeah, it was intense. Yeah, I had to learn. I I had to learn to tap dance because the theater that I performed with uh, as a kid did Forty Second Street. So I learned specifically for a show why they chose to do Forty Second Street when maybe, maybe two or three of the kids at that theater had even like looked at a tap shoe before. Like. Uh, is beyond me, but I was cast because Cass, you know that I I love to be gender bent. Um, <laughs> well, when you're tall, when you're that tall, well, at whatever age, I was cast as Andy Lee, which is now actually a regularly is a role that is actually often cast as female, but it's written as male. It's the choreographer of the show within the show, oh, and really? so I was like, I'm sorry, I've never tap danced before, and I have to learn how to do it well enough that I can make it look like I've been doing it longer or like that I'm teaching the other people the day. I have questions Natalie, about this. you are a true actor. Mm-hmm. They put me in a unitard. I mean, of course. Just one of many ridiculous costumes for my baby giraffe body it's, that I was placed in. It's so funny. I love, like, I have this, my mother is such a sweet, kind woman and just so pure. We just, I just have this running joke of like telling my mom that she's being selfish when she's being so kind and generous. Uh-huh. It's just a funny oxymoron. And so I like to blame a lot of things on her that shouldn't be blamed on her. And I was like, mom, I will blame you for the rest of my life for not putting me in tap. I will never have this. And she's like, Cass, you're an adult. You know, you can just like buy shoes and take a class. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, okay. So I bought shoes. Yeah, but you shouldn't because you're very fragile. Well, I didn't tear my ACL doing tap, but I took a tap class. I did like three drop-in classes, 
And it's really hard because, especially mm-hmm. playing sports, like, especially soccer, because it's all about, like, your planting foot. And the way you have to shift your weight for tap, it's constant. And it's not just swifting, shifting your weight from, like, left to right. It's, like, shifting your weight from the toe of your left foot mm-hmm. to the heel of your right to the... It's yeah. mind-bottling. Well, that's why I think dance is, is good for children in general, because you're not just throwing them in for cute pictures. I mean, they're learning how to... If they have the patience. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it teaches you how to work your body and how to control your movements. Yeah. And so when you do yeah. the different kinds of dance, you're always using your core. But like, you know, a gangly child learning how to do tap is a little bit easier. Adorable. Oh. You know, well, I mean, it's because your body <laughs> learns to kind of conform to these different movements yeah. where like you grew up doing soccer. And so your body only knew yeah. that one kind of movement. Well, and that's but, why, I mean, they make, well, they don't make, but a lot of times you hear like athletes and like football players and whatnot will take... Ballet, ballet or jazz mm-hmm. or something because as for as brawny and like whatever as athlete not even just men but as athletes have to be the the reason why they're professionals is they can knock people over while also doing like uh what's the word uh juke juke yeah i'm gonna juke you i'm gonna shimmy around you and do some like yeah, twinkle there toes is nothing better than watching like a 250 pound lineman just do like an arabesque <laughs> So like, you know, block someone because I'm like, ooh, somebody took a free class. I mean, you see any of those, like, the diving, like, the the running back or whatever. He's pointing that back Just grabbing it with one hand. And you're like, not only is he leaping over large man, it's like, oh, look. Yeah, look at that extension. Look at that toe point. Yeah. You can see it. Every type of dance teaches, like, a completely almost, like, different shade of control over every, of every Mm -hmm. muscle in your body. Mm -hmm. And I think that, like, learning to dance also, like, taking dance classes also from, like, from a memory training sort of thing or, like, a learning thing Mm -hmm. of being able to, like, watch somebody do a thing and then having to put it in your own body is, like, is a very valuable I don't know. It's your body's stretching and your mind is stretching. Well, it's 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 also interesting too the just the perception of it. Speaking of athletes, you know, like football players doing it, the like the gender aspect of it too. Because mm-hmm. now you see like a lot of boys will not take dance classes because they're going to get teased or picked on. It's like a girly thing to do. Ballet when it first began and even now it is so athletic and. It mm-hmm. was not, like, a girly thing to do. People wouldn't tease, you know, male ballerinas because they're like, man, you can see every fucking muscle in their body. Some it was athletic. Workouts. It was masculine. And then it turned to, I don't know, something to tease and mock and delicate. And it's interesting you mentioned Gregory Hines being the one bringing back tap because the way he tapped was like, I mean, I, I looked it up. A chorus line, the film, came out in... Uh, uh, 1985 and that was a Broadway musical and it was about uh, it was finally the first kind of musical that was felt modern about the dancers. it was about the dancers but it felt modern it was talking about like the, how it's cutthroat and how you gotta mm-hmm. work your ass off and it you see how physical and athletic it is and it makes it very like sexy and whatnot and that I was reading about it in this book. It's called the, the Secret Life of the American Musical about how that kind of brought Broadway musicals into the kind of modern era of let's tell a contemporary story with contemporary music. And mm-hmm. we're kind of talking about taboos of like sex and whatnot. And then Gregory Hines started doing all these movies. You think of like Flashdance, Fame, everything where you see the behind the scenes and how much kind of like blood, sex and intrigue is all in it. 
And when you mm-hmm. can see that, like, modern aspect of it and bring that more, just making it seem modern. I think dance is yeah. so foreign to people because everyone thinks of it as, like, ballet where it's mm-hmm. stuffy, it's removed, it's elitist. I think Gregory Hines also is, like, they credit him with bringing it back and, like, securing it as its, like, popularity and it having a place in, in current culture mm. because in the in the 20s, everything had a tap number and then everyone could do it. And it lost maybe some of the mystique mm-hmm. because, like, everyone had to know how to dance to have a career as an entertainer. But also, I'm not saying, like, new styles of tap weren't coming out during that. But what was what became very mainstream was very, like, polished and, like, big smiles. And, Shirley like, Temple. Big, strong hands. Yeah. And that's, like, what became very that's what became mainstream and that's what was everywhere. And it just kind of watered down what it was. And like Gregory Hines introduced Gregory Hines brought it back to being like, this is how complex these individual moves can be. Well, and And also people didn't feel the need to do it anymore. So he's like, yeah, I'm gonna do it. He was like, that's cool what you're doing on Broadway. But like, remember that this is what tap dance is. It's also really fucking hard. I grew up on a lot of the, the classics, the golden age of Hollywood, where everyone, you had to be able to sing, act, dance, play an instrument, you know, you had to be able to do it all. And nowadays, and again, times have changed, so maybe I should come back with the times, but seeing like... Times have changed. (laughs) You're welcome. God damn it. Look at you. God love you. I slipped in a little anything goes for you. Yeah. God bless you, Sutton. Nowadays, it's like, if you want to be an actor or you want to be in the arts, you got to have a lot of Instagram followers. And so I just think there's a a lack of appreciation or at least a loss of appreciation for being a triple threat or being whatever. And I've noticed because I got really did like a deep dive in a Broadway like five or six years ago. I didn't really know much about it and then became obsessed and started following Broadway actors, Broadway singers, shows, performances And I'm now seeing all of them on TV and in film. And I think it's because they are performers. And also, whether you know how to do all the things or not, doing it on film and doing it six shows a week. Eight shows a week, usually. Eight shows a week for a year, year and a half at a time. Like, they throw, they put their body through the Mm -hmm. most intense physical work and are masters of their craft. You want a talented, hard worker, you go to Broadway, and they're seeing that, and now they are all on television and film. Sorry, I could talk about this five ever. I have strong opinions. Yeah, I see that. But, like, whatever. Um, But the fact (laughs) remains, I would like to see Daniel Day-Lewis in a musical, so... He could do it. He was. What? Yeah, he was. Do you know... Oh, it was a a, a movie. Movie musical. Do you know what it was? No. It was it won, I believe. It was nominated for several Tonys. It won the Tony, I think, for for best musical and then they made a film of it that was botched. It's called 9. Oh, no. Yeah, 9. Um the musical, the stage musical is phenomenal and then they made it a movie and it didn't do great. Honestly, the best part of the movie was Marion Cotillard. Marion Cotillard isn't even really a singer, but damn if she didn't act the shit out of her scene and saved that film. Hmm. Sorry, I have thoughts on that, too. That's The more you know. It'll be a bonus episode. Sorry, I really usurped. I didn't even have a topic today, and but you say tap dance, and I'm going to be like, my elbows are in, and I'm 
inserting myself into this conversation. I have a problem. It's all good. Big old nerd. Falap, falap. I, well, I just like that I said tap dance and you like brightened up and Vanilla was like, oh no, like she had like bad flashbacks. I just have bad memories of tap. I, but I, ha- I was it's, kind of forced to do it because yeah. we had to do mm-hmm. like, you know, tap ballet and jazz for mm-hmm. like all years. And I started competing when I was 13. So yeah, it I just, just hurt. It did. It hurt. No, I just, no, I'm very happy that you guys I really enjoy it. I'm glad that the industry is still going. But as a, just a former dancer, like I would just go to the back of the room and I'm just like, oh, you did tap, kind tap, of tap, just tap, tap, sigh. Tap. Like, yeah. Oh. I was like, oh, let's get this over with. Yeah. Also, it was just beautiful. It was uh, very opposite reactions to me just saying the word tap dance. Both were very visceral reactions. Also, <laughs> just I've I've just been a big old ball of emotions this whole time. A, you starting with an Iowa topic. I'm gonna be excited. No, it, he was a remarkable human. Oh yeah. And then tap the love and light of my life. And y'all, I've just been two very different we topics. Really, it's been a roller coaster, yeah. y'all. <laughs> we really made this episode all about Cass. And damn, if as I a don't Leo, do that. as a Leo, I don't like it. And you know, as a Pisces, it makes sense that I've been on the verge of tears the whole time. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna hashtag apologize for um, making this about me because I, I just I felt a lot of feelings. Yeah, I just want I just want to I just want to state for the record that like my story was relatively tight. I'm saying this because I just feel like there have been a couple meandery ones for me. But the reason that this particular episode is running an hour and a half long. (gasps) Oh, no. Is on Cass. I don't have my timer running. State that for the record. Y'all, this is this is all on me. Um, And what you know, what a great example of. History doesn't need to be boring and stuffy. History, anything mm-hmm. you're interested in the present, there is a history behind it, and you can get excited about it. Um, Vania, one of my one of my dearest and oldest friends, mm. I'm so happy Thank you've you. been able to be on the episode. I love that I know someone who works in history, <laughs> and uh, again, you work. Um, you're the National History Day in Iowa State Coordinator. You work for the State Historical Museum of Iowa. Um, is there anything you want to promote or talk about that's coming up or interest? Yeah. This episode will come out in August. Beautiful. Just- Beautiful. Well, just for the State Historical uh, Museum of Iowa, we do have an adult education program that's one of my favorites called History on the Rocks. So take a peek at that. We'll post dates for, uh, I'm not sure if they'll be virtual because we're not sure how mm. COVID's going to go, uh, but there are in-person events and some virtual ones. So make sure to check that out on the um, the Iowa Department of Cultural Affairs website mm. is where you can find information about uh, our museum. Um, yeah, and National History Day is over for the year. Um, but if anyone's curious about looking at projects, you can check out National History Day in Iowa and find us online. We have district contest in March, so those will be in March of 2021. If anyone would like to be a judge and evaluate student projects, we train you and we feed you. So let me know. Um, Cass has my email, but uh, you can also sign up to be a judge on National History Day in Iowa on our website. Um, and then our state contest is in April, at the end of April. So yes, we're always looking for judges. The kids are super fun and it's really easy. You just have to have a passion for history and working with kids. Natalie, we may have That's to so great. swing by. 
Yeah, and I know yeah, Chicago, we'll put, we'll, They, I know that there is a National History Day network there, too. They'd be looking for judges in your area, too. So there's one in every awesome. state. We'll definitely, we'll put look, links to everything that you have just mentioned. Thank you. Uh, in the show notes. And thank you so sure. much for and having me today. This is so much fun. It's, thank you for It's been a pleasure. Us. I completely lost track of time, y'all. So I will apologize for meandering on this episode, but I will <laughs> never apologize for my passion. as always you can find uh we'll probably be posting a lot of videos of of tap dancing definitely check out alexander clark's hot goatee yes uh over on our instagram and twitter that's at shared pod s-h-a-r-e-d-p-o-d and if you have now i'll let you take this i've been talking okay if you have any if you have any questions corrections or suggestions you can holla at us on the emails at sharedhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And on, on that note, we will see y'all next time. Until then, share, share you later. Thank you for playing Arcade Audio. Play more at arcadeaudio.net.